Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. It is an international weekend on Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio. And we're going to start off this weekend with Fadi Marek. He is an artist, a poet from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, black indigenous person of color. He's a well-seasoned spoken word artist as well as an established author. He has written a new book, <laughs> Streams That Lead Somewhere, which was published in 2022 by Mowinzi House Publishers, and his work has also been published in literary presses around the world. Welcome, Fadi, to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here tonight. I'm excited, too. Whenever I flub an opening, you can tell I'm excited. So, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice. <laughs> I, I, and I stay excited because I love so many. <laughs> all right, my friend. All right, all right. Let us let's begin this poetic journey. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's go. All right, all right, good. I like that. <laughs> what is poetry to you? Um, I've always had a dear, dear, uh, and specific definition for what poetry meant to me Um, and that is I think it's just when someone who claims they're a poet and I think anyone can be a poet in different capacities but uh, I think someone who claims they're a poet and they and they own that um, just try to talk about something they care about in a beautiful way in a way that makes you feel something um, is a poet and so um, I, I, when I'm writing poetry specifically, that's what I try to do. But even when I'm trying to write an essay or a short story, I still consider myself a poet because I'm trying to I'm trying to do it poetically and I'm trying to do it beautifully and about something that means a lot to me. So I guess that's what I'd say poetry is. Talk a little bit more about the beauty in poetry. What makes it beautiful for you? What brings that out? I, I guess for me... I guess for me, what makes it beautiful is sometimes it can be beautiful and sometimes it doesn't have to be in order to be powerful. Um, I think that being given the keys to this medium that allows people to feel an emotion of something that they might not have experienced firsthand. I've had people read my work and say, oh, well, I'm not Muslim, but you made me kind of feel what it feels like to be oppressed in an Islamophobic way. Um, or to have that kind of experience and um, to have the, 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 the ability to give that to someone and say, well, here's how it feels on the other side um, is both ugly and beautiful, but overall just really powerful and something that needs to happen. Okay. Um, so that's why I think the act of doing it is beautiful because it allows that, that, that exchange to occur. Okay. All right. All right. 
So as you think about it on a macro level, potentially, why is poetry important? I ask myself that all the time when I'm thinking about my career. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, of course it's important. I, it's, I think it's ultimately important. I think it's so important to be able to provide art and culture to the world and 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 provide something. You know, it's funny because um, just today, uh, I'm, a, I'm a poet, and before I became a poet, I was um, trying to be a doctor, Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always kind of in this this culture system where it's like, oh yeah, you you know your parents want you to be a doctor, your grandparents want you to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And my mom uh, presented to me this this notebook that was my grandfather's, who I never met, that was filled with poems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought of I, I thought of his role in my family tree as like a provider and someone who you know helped raise his kids, and I never thought that the one of the most impactful things I would get from him is this book of culture and thoughts and feelings that he put together. So the ability to take that and provide it for the world, to give the world something beautifully permanent and say, well, this is a little snapshot of what my experience on this world was at this time, um, I think is important in just cataloging the history of the world and also just and reaching out to one another um, and being able to create connections with, within society. All right. All right. One of my recent guests, he's a doctor and a poet. He was a doctor first. Now he's a poet. And he hails from originally from Pakistan. So, really? Uh, yes. I'll introduce the two of you. We had a wonderful conversation. Wonderful conversation. May I ask what his name was? Yes. <laughs> Dr. Arif Ahmad. Arif Ahmad. Okay, I'll, I'll have to look it up. I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you. I'll help you. <laughs> yes, he's a great man. Great, great, great man. I, I admire him so much. Please share with me an early experience where you learned that poetry had power. Hmm. Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and not cite my own poetry, but okay. I am going to cite the poetry of someone who greatly inspired me. Um, so growing up as a big, big fan and immersed in the culture of hip hop, um, I was really uh, inspired to create conscious lyricism uh, mm-hmm. based on the workings of uh, Lupe Fiasco. Okay. Um, and... Lupe Fiasco was one of the earliest, and I know he's a rapper, but to me, he was always a poet. Um, and people in that same in that same wavelength, who created conscious, meaningful work in a in a musical sphere where I didn't care for things that weren't conscious. You know, mm-hmm. people, um, my family, and people who looked like me were going through too much for me to distract myself with um, things that didn't fulfill. They didn't scratch my brain, um, and so I found a I found a commonality in terms of my mind with with artists like Saul Williams and you know Lauren Hill and Lupe Fiasco and uh, and most Def. And so uh, the poetry, the Def Jam poetry uh, slam, uh, actually was my first my first exposure to that world. And um, 
I think it was after my first ever breakup that mm-hmm. I I heard a um a slam piece by uh was it was it Shaheen? Uh it was it was about love. Okay. And it just made me feel things that I had bottled up for so long mm-hmm. um in such a real and visceral way that I knew that this was something so much more powerful than I had given it credit in the past and uh that was my intro to, to trying to get into that community. All right, very nice, very nice. Please share a poem. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to share a poem that I am very fond of um, from my book. Uh, so just to just to preface, uh, when I was writing my book, uh, part some of the poems that I wrote, uh, I wrote them in a literary sense, which means I, I took into account uh, line breaks and form mm-hmm. and structure. Uh, and then coming from a spoken word background, um, there were some poems that I put in the book that were literally just came from straight from my mind onto the onto the document because they were so fluid like a slam piece. And so um, this first poem uh, was one of those, it's one of those spoken word-esque poems uh, that I wrote about Islamophobia. Okay. <clears throat> After 9-11... The war spilled into our hometowns and made us grow up too fast. And my homie sister don't wear her hijab no more. And all my friends on the ball team say they got my back when they overhear one of the dudes from the school across town say, I heard their team's got a Muslim on it. And my face stays a silent obelisk, a statued testament to normalcy as I barely hear him. Yo, my ears have no capacity for bigotry ever since they were flooded the other day with the sounds of mosque windows smashing open to an uncensored night sky. And I want to tell this boy that the brick that they threw that day was ten times heavier than the words you're floating up into the room right now. But that remark, is it nearly enough satisfaction? So it curls up into a ball inside of me and I ball my fist into vengeful demolition, a wrecking ball winding up to do to his stomach what they did to the houses of my friends from Palestine. But I don't because this isn't our part of town. And I'm reminded of when my cousins got caught cutting through the wrong New York alleyway by some rednecks with a pistol. And damn, I never realized that a nine millimeter barrel can look black ocean wide when you're scared enough. And yeah, sure, we made it home safe. But our walk back held a tragic, furious kind of silence that burned our throats like salt water whenever we tried to speak its name through a drowning rage. And so we swallowed it down and plastered it to our diaphragms. And for years, we would taste it on our breath until one day Alexis drives by our neighborhood and yells out, go home, you packies. And we try to let it go. Because auntie told us to keep a low profile and uncle won't even let us wear bomber jackets because they're called bomber jackets and even that's too risky. But there is still an angry sea in our bellies and the red light they get caught at cracks open the dam and it tempts us to run up on them. And so we do. And this time it's we who shatter the windows. Wow. You are good, man. <laughs> I had to perk up. There's a conviction and power in your voice that cannot be denied, man. Oh, I appreciate that. I mean, 
from someone like you who's listened to so many poets and interviewed so many poets, that means an incredible amount. Well, thank you. I mean, as I've shared with people recently, I'm too old to lie. So, uh, <laughs> I, I really can I write that down? I'm write <laughs> yeah, that down. <laughs> I was just thinking when you were talking about some of the artists that you <laughs> admire, that I was thinking he must have been a baby if because Luffy Fiasco is not that old. You know what I'm saying? I was a grown man working a full time job <laughs> when you were probably still in the crib. <laughs> <laughs> And Def Jam poetry, that was back in the mid-90s. I know yeah, I was yeah. to for it. <laughs> all right, all right, let me focus. <laughs> Dreams That Lead Somewhere is the title of your book. Mm-hmm. Dreams That Lead Somewhere. You know, as we've been working, pulling this program together for some time, when I initially read the title. I was like, what is that? What is he talking about? I can't wait to ask him. But what <laughs> first would like to know is, what inspired the book? Um, the book is something that was a cumulative of a dream that I've had for a long time. I think that just the dream of one day having a book and having something that you could stamp and say, this is mine and it's permanent and it's something that's going to mark the world um, that was always something that I wanted. Um, I didn't know how I wanted it. When mm-hmm. I was thinking of being a doctor, I thought that maybe it would come out in medical books or medical textbooks and uh, couldn't be happier with it being a poetry book and something that's conveying that kind of emotion. Uh, the book was born from a conversation that I had with a dear, dear friend of mine. Her name is Joy, um, <clears throat> where we were both... Um, I think at this point we were both pretty, we were both clinically depressed okay. and uh, we were bonding over the summer and we were just sitting on the water and I was venting about how sad I was and how I couldn't see a way forward in life. Mm-hmm. And um, she told me this, she said this sentence that always stuck with me and it was no matter how weak or trickling or, um, small the stream is, if you follow it down, it'll lead to something oh, wow. like a lake or an ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, it doesn't have to be perfect right now, but it, you know, if you just stick with it, I promise you it'll get to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, this book, if you read the, I guess like the four, the foremost poem before the actual poems start, like it's a, mm-hmm. it's in honor of the people who are seeking that and it's Mm -hmm. in honor of the people who took their own lives and never got to do what I got to do and get past that because, you know, depression and suicide are very real, real issues. And uh, having firsthand experience with that, that was, that's a big thing for me to uh, address in this book. So that's kind of the idea that, that, that uh, birth can make it a stream that led somewhere by the end of it. Um, Mm starting off in this place that's dark and desolate and and slowly and slowly showing through these experiences through poems how you can evolve and grow and persevere to someplace better. All right. Would you mind reading the, the dedication in front of your book for us? Yeah. Uh, so the dedication at the beginning of the book reads, 
the desperate feeling of Tylenol forcing its way down an already dry throat. This is a yarn that unravels into the beauty of a stomach pump, but still won't let you forget the overdose. For those waking up at the stream, and in honor of those who never got to. I'd like you to share that one more time for the people yeah. in the back. For the people in the back. I want everybody to hear it. The desperate feeling of Tylenol forcing its way down an already dry throat. This is a yarn that unravels into the beauty of a stomach pump, but still won't let you forget the overdose. For those waking up at the stream and in honor of those who never got to. And if I may, could I, could I, uh, could I read the first poem in the book that yes, of course, kind please, of, uh, yes. so the, yes. that, that it kind of goes directly into the first poem, which says it's called streams. Most people do not know that your hands shake violently as your final letter to the world is drafted inside. Your pen knows the words it will become and twitches in fear. Wrists summoning what little flight there is left, I try to describe that the blackness my eyelids provide in between sweet blinks is a fleeting high, and that these ribs have been cold like jail cell bars for as long as I can remember. Then one day, I woke up barely alive, next to a trickling stream, still coughing up the river sticks onto grass, greener than I first realized. And I may as well see where this leads. Thanks. Wow. Mental illness is not a joke. No. Living with, as someone who lives with mental illness, depression, anxiety, some of those things, it's nothing to play with. It can be truly crippling. Definitely, yeah. Yes, and you again, you don't often know or see a way out. Wow. Yeah, absolutely not. And I mean, I, I've been told repeatedly over the years that, oh, I, I wouldn't peg you as someone who would have gone through that or would have been going through that. And I, and I tell them, you really, there's no pattern that you mm-hmm. that you can tell on who is going through what. Uh, oftentimes the people who seem the least like they're going through it are the ones who are going through it the worst. Um, So it's just spread love, be kind to each other, be, be just great to to one another. And that's, that's what I'm here to preach. So as you think about the predominant themes in the book, what would they all be potentially? Sorry, could you repeat the question? Yes. I'm sorry. The predominant themes the predominant themes um so i like to pre- i like to reference two main ones um that i think the book addresses in an innovative way and that is okay. um mental illness intersectionality with um racialization social racialization and okay. so how do these two ideas connect that when society deems you um a terrorist and they say you know you're a terrorist go back to your country how does that have an innate effect on your psyche how you perceive your your identity in this country that you are not even sure is a home it certainly doesn't accept you like a home yeah um and so and then how does that affect your mental your mental health 
as someone mm-hmm. who I was dedicating every hour of my week for years to be a doctor to help others um and I'm not deserving of that I don't I shouldn't be in this country I shouldn't have that opportunity to do that was something that I definitely struggled with um for a long time and so one of the things that I really wanted the book to focus on was the intersection specifically of how these racialized and racially charged experiences influence uh mental illness and then as a subsect of that um I talk about familial trauma and I think I I've only met one person who's picked up on that theme okay. um but uh shout out to Brendan DeCares but um he said uh well one of the streams that you're talking about in the book is it the stream of the your your family your bloodline it's like a it's like a stream of your bloodline and i said yeah like familial trauma is a huge theme in this book and how does the how do these mentally illness and racially charged intersected experiences then pass down in your family how did that mm-hmm. how did something that happened in pakistan through colonization um now affect my family in this day and haunts us um so those are all things that I think uh, are the major themes of the book. Right. You know, it's funny. I was reading about the partition, 1947, mm-hmm. last night. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> yes, yes. And actually, I watched a couple of documentaries on YouTube about it. So my, my second book that I'm working on now is is one of the research topics that I'm going to be engaging with is my family lineage with partition. Um and how those things have kind of influenced my family because uh, the second book is going to focus a lot more on personal identity and familial identity, immigration, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm. So knowing what you know about the world, my question is, and what you've experienced, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Um, I, when I started writing about these kinds of topics and themes, um, mm-hmm. I must say that it was painful. Okay. Um, of course, I mean, to talk about that kind of stuff and delve into, I want to also say that everything in my book is autobiographical. There's no, there's no fiction in it. Okay. Um, and so having to revisit those, those experiences and not just racial racial experiences but also experiences with you know family family issues and uh health issues um traumatic things can be a very vulnerable place to be in life and um i am very very fortunate to have a support system around me that i find i feel safe in um so i'm at the point now where I don't find that it's it's painful as much. I mean, it'll hurt for a little bit, but ultimately I feel like if the goal is to provide an olive branch to someone who is going through something similar and could use the words that I could have used at that time, mm-hmm. then it it softens the blow that that writing that poetry hits me with because I know that it's for something um bigger than myself. All right. Please share another poem. Yeah. Uh, Let's go to 
I'm going to share a different topic poem. Um, or actually, you know what? We're on the uh, topic of mental illness. Uh, I'll I'll write a poem that, um, uh, or sorry, I'll read a poem that's about a depression and my uh, experience with depression and simultaneous experience with a friend who is going through depression. You know, you know how sometimes um, you have that feeling of, oh, I can give everyone around me good advice, but when I can't, I can't follow my own yeah. advice. Do it all the time. Oh yeah. This poem was kind of it was kind of uh, inspired by that of oh I can see so clearly that this person is depressed and how to help them and um, but I can't see it myself and in myself and so that was this is something I wrote for a friend of mine. It's called uh, depression is as bloody a battle as any. Hmm. I asked her about the scars on her arms the strongest person I knew. I refused to believe it was any reason short of that she was catching eager grenades, clasping them shut in a prison of knuckles and fingers, shielding others, a smile on her face as if there was no regard for shrapnel. She had been washed in the flood of catcalls and inequality for so long that she finally saw windows that needed breaking since doors refused to open. She was the kind of person who would smash through glass ceilings and lick her blood clean in satisfaction. I overheard that she stole so much opportunity from life that death himself was furious, and as the Grim Reaper tried to cut off her hands in punishment, his strikes refused to slice deep enough, his scythe broke on her Nemean lioness thick skin. And then I think she saw Trump's wall and winced as she wrapped her hands, finger to wrist in its unraveling barbed wire crown. Or actually, they were probably bite marks from wrestling crocodiles in the Nile. No, she's the kind of person to grab roses by their thorns, hug them tightly, and promise to love every part of them equally. She shook her head and told me, waged wars aren't always deafening cannons. That struggle isn't some marvelous thing. And that her battles were hushed and overlooked. Hmm. Nothing but a whispered conversation between a girl and her razors. I need a second for that one. Maybe two. And the idea um, for this this poem, I was very inspired by a poet that I... Um, I'm blanking on the name now, but uh, mm-hmm. there's a poem. There's a poem called um, "Black Girl Plays Violin on Her Arm." All right, I wow. believe, mm-hmm. and it was about you know um, tr- treating the violin like the arm, and and how self harm is often like music, and uh, that was some. It was a feeling that I really wanted to capture in this fantastical way of how we look at someone who we think is a superhero and we think, no, I mean, they can't be going through that because, you know, it must be crocodiles in the Nile and it must be, it must be this other thing. And, and oftentimes it's those people who need the support, like we said before. And so that's kind of what this poem came from. Now on the cover of your book, is that you reaching up? I like to think it's me. Um, All right. It's funny because, I had a friend 
do a mock-up of a cover for the book that had me in the middle. Okay. And I ended up, uh, I ended up loving the artwork, but not loving the idea of having me on the cover. Mm-hmm. So, or so easily identifiable as me. Because if you know me, I have a very specific style. I'm always wearing a headband. I'm always having the same haircut, beard, and a hoodie. So right. for this thing to look so identical to what I look like every day, I don't know. It, it felt a little like I wasn't keeping it accessible for people who were looking at the art. And so um, I found this, I believe it was a Swedish artist, and I was just going through some some graphic design stuff and uh, I found this one artwork because mm-hmm. it was representative and it felt representative of me in the middle of the artwork, but it wasn't explicitly me, or I should say uh, exclusively me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people can look at and it, it almost, it, it looks like a child on the front. So it does I, actually, I think a lot of people can look at that as a past version of themselves mm-hmm. reaching up at this goal or this place they want to be not being there yet, but yes. having the desire to get there. And that's, that's kind of the, the feeling I got when I saw that art. So I, yes. I guess it's me, but it's also, I, I hope the reader. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Now doing the selection process of your poems, how did you decide which poems to choose? It was really tough because um, I don't remember how many poems are in the book, but um, I think it's like, there's a lot, but I easily had double, double if not triple the amount of written work um, that was proposed for the book and that I ended up pruning down uh, for the manuscript. So um, it was definitely this this process where I had to think what is necessary in the story that I want to tell? Mm-hmm. What themes are being spoken about that I feel are important to this journey that I want the reader to go on. Because again, it's it's me telling a story that I know how it ends. I know how I want the book to end and wrap up, but the reader doesn't. So looking at it from their perspective, which poems are crucial to that development they go through, um, they're going to be like, wow, I really understand why this was here. Um, so there's definitely a, a great deal of the poems that are like that. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, besides that, there were <laughs> I've had a, I've done a couple interviews, um, in print interviews where people have been like, "Why was this poem in this?" Because it feels like an anomaly to me. Um, mm-hmm. And those are generally uh, you'll notice that some of the poems have the names of the seven deadly sins. Mm. Um, I believe there's sloth, there is wrath, there's pride, um, and there was essentially uh, I think there's also greed. And there was essentially seven of these for each one. I ended up planning to write seven Seven Deadly Sins poems, um, one for each. And what ended up happening was it felt not authentic to add it into the manuscript without a tether to the overall theme. And so Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, I'm going to write a poem for each of the Seven Deadly Sins as I feel like that sin has set me back in my journey um as my journey of where the stream is leading me currently if greed something that i perceive as greed sets me back or something i perceive as pride sets me back i'm going to write a poem about it and i'm Mm -hmm. going to add it into 
the manuscript where I feel it's representative of a setback or uh, maybe even pushing you forward um, in some way. But so there's about four of the seven, I believe, in the book um, that without context, I guess, might be a bit of an anomaly in the manuscript, but that's why. All right. You know, I was planning to ask you to share with us the titles of five poems in the book, because I wanted to know when titling a poem, what should you consider? Touched on that. So when you write a poem, my friend, does the title come first or the poem itself? I'll ask you that one. Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I will say that the only time for, so my general answer is going to be that I feel like the title comes after. Okay. Because I think that a lot of times, like in a lot of art, even in a lot of movies, I feel like the title of the piece of artwork is representative of the entire body of work. And therefore it's hard to be understood without understanding the body of work first. Um, like for example, the book that I wrote is called streams that lead somewhere, but mm-hmm. the title of the book is really representative of the journey you go through throughout the entire book. And so I'd, I think that the title makes more sense after you've gone through the, the journey of the book and then go, Oh, I see why that was called that. And so um, in general, I would say the title um, comes after. The only exception I have is uh, I have a few poems uh, in my book that have ramp-on titles okay. um, where it's meant to be read as if the title goes directly into the poem. Um, and in those instances, I would say the title comes beforehand and it's meant mm-hmm. to be a representative of a starting point in a holistic story. Uh, An example of that is the poem that I read, the first poem that I read. Mm -hmm. The the title is, and it's a long title, the title is, After 9-11, the war spilled into our hometowns and made us grow up too fast, and my homie sister don't wear her hijab no more. (laughs) All right. So the entire entire first line (laughs) is this title because I wanted to illustrate this feeling of whoa, this monumental thing just happened. It's affected, you know, my cousins live in New York. Um, mm-hmm. I, I spent a lot of time in New York. Um, this thing that we thought that was kind of separate from us is now directly influencing my daily life. Yes. And now I'm growing up too fast. And now visceral changes, real societal changes are happening. My friend's mm-hmm. sister who wore a hijab doesn't wear her hijab anymore um, mm-hmm. as a direct result of that. And so uh, in a ramp on title, I like to provide like this, starting point of where the story will begin mm-hmm. but other than that i think that it's at least for me it's meant to be understood afterwards mm-hmm. you know i shared with dr ahmad that after 9 11 happened there was a new group at the bottom and the group was not african-american at that point and uh for many African Americans, or at least I won't say that, for people that I talk to, it seemed as if that was the first time that black people, that they were a part of America. Hmm. They were not outliers. Yeah, yeah. Muslim individuals were at that point. Things have gone back, but at that point, there was a new group at the bottom. Yeah, I mean, it certainly. Um... It certainly felt like a very significant 
dynamic and paradigm shift in in society and um, not just for Muslims because as a Muslim man I get a buy I, I get a pass a little bit because I can be visibly not Muslim you know like all right, all right. someone can someone could look at me and theoretically be like oh you know he might be Sikh he might be Hindu he might mm-hmm. he might be Christian you know there are a lot of Christians in South Asia but for my mom and for my aunties and for my cousins who wore hijab who are burqa and niqab um, they didn't get that out. They were visibly Muslim every single day of their lives. Right. Um, and there was this really existential threat in society that something could happen at all and uh, mm-hmm. at any time. And uh, I mean, it's still happening in in the GTA in the Greater Toronto mm-hmm. area where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ramadan. So Ramadan's been going on for about 20 days now. All right. And in these 20 days, there's been a gigantic uh, uptick in Islamophobic crime. Um, like 20 minutes away from me, there was a guy who tried to run people over at the masjid. Um, and so it's almost like there is a direct correlation between wanting to proudly be something and then having the pushback from society. And mm. um, it's something that, unfortunately... I mean, obviously the Muslim community got a taste of it, but it's something that the black community has been going through for a long time and something yes. that um, I wholeheartedly try to try to provide aid for whenever I can. Um, mm-hmm. Because there is a resonating emotion and feeling there a lot of the time that I feel like can build bridges. Mm. You know, I... My question that I've asked for over 300 and probably 50 times now is, because there is so much happening in the world, the good, the bad, the ugly, as well as the indifferent, what do you, Fadi Malik, view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? And I'm going to let you think about that really quickly. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. Okay, great. Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with part of our future, Fari Malik. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern day society, my friend? Um, so, my general answer, because poets can be lots of things, yes, is that I feel like a poet is someone who has the responsibility to take something that they feel is important to share mm-hmm. 
and make it lyrical to the point that people cannot deny it. People cannot overlook it. People will feel it. People will understand it. Um, now, but to elaborate on that, mm-hmm. I think a privilege, at least in North America, for white poets and poets of from a, from privileged backgrounds, um, on a societal standpoint, mm-hmm. is being able to create and craft poetry that doesn't have to address societal issues because that is intrinsically tied to um, creating happiness and creating stability in society for a lot of marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, poetry, um, a lot of the times is about writing about Islamophobia and my experiences with racialization, my experiences with mental health, because those are things that from a underrepresented point of view, I want to provide to the world stage to say, you are not going to deny that this happens. You are not going to deny that my feelings are real. Um, does that discount the fact that a lot of you know, poets write about leaves and trees and, and flowers? No, because that is something that they feel is important and something that they feel is impactful to them. But I do think that it is a point of privilege to say that that is something that is not tied to your craft, that you don't have this responsibility to talk about these issues that affect your daily life. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, you view yourself as being a BIPOC poet. And BIPOC is the acronym for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. Is that term confining anyway? I think from an industrial, um, I think in, in terms of the industry, it is, it can be confining. Um, I think a lot of times, um, a lot of people, when they realize that, not just BIPOC, but um, if you are part of the LGBTQ community, if you're part, if you're trans, if you are indigenous, um, any sort of one of those marginalized communities that people want to exploit for trauma porn art. Oh, wow. Trauma porn art. And to That's say amazing. that, <laughs> and to say that like, oh, well, tell us about your experiences, you know, uh, uh, contracting a black artist to say, well, we don't want your art unless you're talking about the black struggle is an injustice to that artist and injustice to the community. Um, so, yeah, I think in an industry perspective, there's definitely an exploitive um, aspect to that. And mm-hmm. I think that it does confine a lot of artists into a role that they say, well, if I don't talk about this, I'm not going to be successful. So I kind of have to in order to be successful. Um, and not necessarily because they feel like it's important at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it can be. But also I think that it's, it's kind of empowering because yeah. uh, I, I'm going to reference my mentor, um, Josh Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um, so before I was a writer, I was a dancer. And um, Josh well, Taylor... Stop, stop, right, stop right there. I thought before you were a writer, you were going to be a doctor. 
Yeah, you yeah. Adapted- I- <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so I was, I was, I was studying at McMaster University in Hamilton and teaching at a dance studio called the okay. Climbing Movement Dance. All right, all right. Um, and so Josh was my mentor since high school. He's the owner of the studio. He's a fantastic dancer and even greater um, artistic leader and manager. And he put together this um, this show called Uncomfortable Project, which took place in earlier this year. Uh, and the Uncomfortable Project was a project that looked at systemic issues, specifically issues from a BIPOC perspective, through the lens of hip hop. Mm-hmm. And I was a I was a poet and uh, a performer with that, and you know a lot of people were dancers and there was rappers and singers, and so. Um, that group would not have found each other and created connections if it wasn't for this BIPOC term. Okay. Uh, So in a lot of ways, I find that finding people who I can confide in, who can confide in me, who I can support, um, that term does bring a lot of community, Mm -hmm. but it can be exploited in a, in a, in the industry way. Right. Well, Please share a poem. Please of course. Poem. Of course. Um, let's go. I want to switch up the themes here and there. All right. Um, yeah, so this is a poem that I wrote. Uh, it was partly inspired by um, the passing of my grandmother, um, but it's really just a general poem for when someone leaves Um, Whether it's passing, whether it's moving, breakup, whatever, and trying to freeze this moment, this last moment you have with them before they're gone. Um, This is, on the last day we spent together before you left. On the last day we spent together before you left, I would have counted the army of indented blades of grass that once held your form. I would have carved your name into the palms of my hands and pressed your scarlet initials into tree trunks. I would have played your laugh on my iPod like my favorite album and painted your smile into my eyelids. I would have held you like a newborn does a finger, much harder than you would expect. Al Green would be playing on the jukebox. I would have swum in my mind and tied every one of my neurons together. I would have crafted them into a safe just to keep our memories impregnable. I think I could have loved you forever. I think I could have given you a warmth that would have made the sun jealous. I would build you a spaceship. I heard that Venus rotates so slowly that I could hold your hand and we could walk forever into a sunset. I could have wrung the skin dry and made coffee from your last touch. It would have kept us awake long enough to forget that eternity doesn't always come with a guarantee. You knew that. And I know that you had to leave. But I just wish it could have lasted a little while longer. Thank you. Wow. You know, Fatty, some poets claim that a poem is like a living creature. Once it's out there, 
There's not much you can do to correct or improve it, while others edit meticulously, not leaving much from the original draft form. What is your take on the editing process? I think I think the editing process for me is something that is a means to an end. Um, I think that if you treat the editing process like you want something to come out perfectly, it's just never going to end. Um, I like to – well, I'm kind of biased because I come from a dance background where I've had to create, you know, choreography and then fix it up to the point where it's, it's displayable. Um, and so I kind of treat poetry the same way, uh, which is I – when I write something, I find it bad <laughs> at first. Okay. All right. And, All right. And it's only about it's only through the editing and rewriting that it becomes something that I start to love, and I kind of stop editing and playing with it once it gets to a point where I go, yeah, that makes me feel something, and there's nothing that I want to add to this to stretch it out further. There's nothing mm-hmm. that I want to cut from this. It's just it is this living thing that I love, um, that imperfections and all I'm you know I'm, I might look at this in a year and say wow I would have written this differently I would have but it is a great great summary of how I feel about this specific topic at this point in time at this level of my career mm-hmm. uh, and so I try to edit it to get to that point where I go this is something that I'm happy with and I love let's put it out into the ether <laughs> <laughs> you know the reason I asked that particular question is that the poem you shared just shared about your grandmother, I was so fascinated by the way that you were able to to weave the words, to craft your words. That to me was masterful. Oh and my God! Thank you. So much. Al, <laughs> but when you mentioned Al Green, that didn't hurt. I was like, "What did this young man go <laughs> about Al Green? <laughs> That's the one that got me." <laughs> so, okay, I tell you, I'm I'm under thirty, but my soul. My soul is 60, 70. <laughs> I felt you were an old soul, my friend. I, I picked that up. <laughs> it's funny because um, I, I, I read this poem for schools and stuff, and mm-hmm. um, I get a lot of students who ask me, oh, Al Green, who's Al Green? And I go, you don't know, let's stay together. And they go, <laughs> they go, no. And I go, oh, my God, you got to go home. I want has a poem you've written ever humbled or frightened you? Hmm. Humbled or frightened me. Um there's a poem that I wrote recently. Mm-hmm. that I'm starting to use my words. So it was my second book, I, I want it to be part poetry and part um, essays. Okay. And uh, one of the things that I wrote um, from that collection that's kind of in, in the works is a poem called Malik al Maut, um, which means the angel of death. Um, and it's... Uh, confronting these realistic situations that, you know, like as someone 
who is a second generation immigrant who was born here. My parents came here. Um, there were very traumatic and real issues that my parents faced that I didn't and very real issues that my grandparents faced that I didn't. Um, yes. I believe Warsenshire um, in her new book uh, mentions it some, some, something along the lines of um, you don't put your babies in a boat unless the land you're leaving is the mouth of a shark. Mm-hmm. Um, and so confronting these very real issues that not just my parents, but refugees coming now faced and facing my, I guess, for lack of a better word, privilege in comparison to them not having to go through that. Um, and the different sets of situations we have is uh, something that I had to really embrace and, and write about. So in that poem, uh, I took a look at that and it it did it did really scare me at first because it's something that I hadn't necessarily thought about in an artistic sense mm-hmm. that I really had to be okay with moving forward. Wow. You know, they say that to see the world with complete honesty, one should look to comedians, musicians, artists, and poets. What do you think emerges naturally from your work? What emerges from you? You mean in terms of topic or just anything? No, just what what do you bring what what do you bring to your work from inside I, you? I think I think my if I had to differentiate my, me from people who I see or read and mm-hmm. something that I, I I like to stamp as something that I bring is um I feel like I bring a musicality or a flow, a fluidity to the to the okay. work. Okay. Um, it's fitting of a book that the metaphor is water. Um, but I think that when I bring these ideas together, I don't. It doesn't feel right to me when they're blocky and separated. I like to weave in and out of ideas and concepts because that's how they are in my brain. All right. Um, That's what makes me be able to talk about Al Green and then Venus, the next line, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because I am this person. And if you ask my girlfriend, she'll tell you the same thing, that my brain just is scattered and it goes from like one topic to the next topic to the next topic. But I braid them together. And um, I think that that's a beautiful thing when you could braid a bunch of things together and then make it holistic in the sense that at the end of it, you were still talking about one overall thing. Do you think you were meant to be a poet? Mm. My, I, honestly, I think so. And I, th- I think about it a little bit long because I think that there's a few things that I've tried to be and have wanted to be that, I could have been okay at, um, but okay, being okay at something is just being good at something when you're devoid of the passion for it. Okay. Uh, so who's to say that I'm not just okay at poetry, but I have a passion and a work ethic for it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I, I, you know, when you're in school and they say, oh, you got a B, that's fine. But if I loved the course, I would have gotten an A. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's how I feel about poetry versus other things. Is that I could have got. I feel like I could have gotten to be in a lot of things in life, but there's not a lot that make me feel like I'm earning myself an A plus every day, and okay. that is what poetry is to me. So yeah, I, I guess yeah. You know, we're almost at the top of the hour. Can you hang with me for about ten more minutes? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm having a good time right now. Okay. <laughs> I just want to make sure. Because <laughs> I know you want to eat. So <laughs> I just want to make sure. We'll take a break at the top of the hour. Give you an opportunity. Now, okay. Now, we know that you love poetry. What surprises you most about being a poet? That's what I want to know. What surprises you? Hmm. I think... I think one of the things that surprises me, and it might just be a deficit in like who I am as a person, because I'm the kind of person who, if I see an opportunity to to plug someone, to help someone, to allow someone a networking opportunity or a pathway to success, I am the, I'm the person who is most likely going to go out of my way to do that for someone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I've had people come up to me and say, oh, well, did you do a reading at this place? How do I get in there? And I'll be like, oh, I'll CC you on an email to the organizer right now. Like, you're very talented. I'm sure that they'll take you. And mm-hmm. that's just normal to me. And that's always been normal to me. Even in school, you know, someone misses a class. I got you. I'll send you the notes, whatever. Um, I think that there's a level of gatekeeping in the poetry community that – is almost like, well, these opportunities were earned by me and like I had to, you know, successfully check off a, a list of things in order to get this. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not uh, eager to share my opportunity with others. And that's a really foreign concept to me because I'm just very adamantly wanting to provide community and help to wherever I see it and might need it. Mm-hmm. Um, that surprises me about the poetry community because I, from the outside looking in before I got really got into it, it feels like the kind of community that should be very supportive of each other. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's been a lot, a lot, a lot of um, experiences I've had where people are supportive of each other. But yeah, just a few times where that's happened and it's been tough to get past uh, uh, industry-based things. Um, as a colored author, as a Muslim author, uh, as a a young author even, uh, again, like the publishing industry is still ruled by older white men. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I guess those aspects of getting into it and creating some sort of uh, unity has been a little bit difficult that I didn't expect. All right. We'll be right back, everyone. Top of the hour. Back with Fadi Malik.
All right, we are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Fadi Malik. Hello. Join myself. <laughs> you, you should never scare. You know. It was almost like you walked up behind me. And sh- <laughs> you should never scare the host. You should never- <laughs> I apologize. And I had something really nice to say, too. <laughs> Because we haven't really had an opportunity to hear a lot of your work. Two or three, three or four of your works, back to back, uninterrupted by me, no questions, it's just you. On the stage, Adi Malik. All right. So you said two or three poems? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about the two or three poems that I'm going to select. Um and why I'm choosing them. Uh, One of them is going to be a reread of a poem that I read earlier. Uh, So I'm going to read, so I'm going to start off with, I mean, we've talked about the the concept of the book. It's starting off at the stream and it's leading to somewhere that is better or more productive. Um, And so I'm going to start off with my poem, the first poem in the book, which is called streams. Um, I'm going to read the poem Aftershocks, and I'm going to finish up with a final poem in the book, which is called Somewhere. Streams. Most people do not know that your hands shake violently as your final letter to the world is drafted. It's as if the ink inside your pen knows the words it will become and twitches in fear, wrists summoning what little flight there is left. I try to describe that the blackness my eyelids provide in between sweet blinks is a fleeting high and that these ribs have been cold like jail cell bars for as long as I can remember. Then one day I woke up barely alive next to a trickling stream still coughing up the river sticks onto grass greener than I first realized. I may as well see where this leads. Next, I'm going to read Aftershocks. Brown girl once taught me that her flesh was molasses, not for its darkness or its sweetness, because her skin was just as thick. That's how it's got to be to survive. Brown girl only ever cooked with brown sugar for solidarity, she joked. Brown girl said she still felt the anxiety of her ancestors whenever she crossed a border. Looking for checkpoints feels like an instinct brown girl's family hoarded. They built castles of cardboard in the living room and they savored every bit of what they could call theirs. Her family said it was because they knew what it was like to lose a home, to have a tongue stolen, to have a culture ripped clean from their wombs. At school, a white girl told us she's one quarter Scottish, half British, and a quarter Israeli. And she asked brown girl, what kind of brown are you? Your guess is as good as mine. And finally, I'm going to finish off with the final poem in the book, which is called somewhere. 
most of the time, somewhere, isn't a place, but rather it is here, where you sit on a diving board of what you used to be, trusting that the water below outruns the ceramic tiles to catch you, where your smile no longer feels like aching cheeks, sometimes, somewhere, isn't a home but it is just existing in rebellion of a world that wants you to not. Sometimes, somewhere, is putting that first quarter in a piggy bank like your heart has finally changed its locks to something that you might actually have the key to, that a shower is no longer a temple worshipping the art of breaking down when the grocery store's ethnic food aisle stops feeling like the only piece of home left. All of this is somewhere, and somewhere is where we are born, the stones in our backpacks ripening, deciding to be mangoes instead, beard now chin drenched in juice, us, still looking for oceans, but now sure that they're out there somewhere, thank you. Wow. You know, writers and poets write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to the audience. Others write because staying silent is not an option. Why do you write? I think <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. I think I think although it's I, I find that it's easy to it can be easy for a lot of people to, to not voice themselves. Um, about specific things, but that's not the person who I am. I am the person who, if I believe in something and I believe something should be rectified, I'm going to work towards that goal and create avenues for change. And so um, it's a little bit of that, but it's also a little bit because thing like a therapy for me okay. um, to be able to reconcile these experiences with myself. And um, in this final poem that I read, you know, still having the imagery of uh, suicide and depression um, and paralleling the last book, uh, sorry, the last poem in the book to the first poem in the book and how they talk about similar themes, but the tone of them are different, Mm -hmm. um, I think are ways of me to cope with my own issues and overcoming those things and seeking a therapy with regards to those. So um, it's a little bit for me and it's a little bit for the world. I guess. All right. All right. You know, we've come to the end of our poetic journey, but I've got to ask you, will you please share one more before you go, man? Just one more, like an encore, please. Oh, of course. I've, I've, I was saving one in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I like that. <laughs> um, this poem, it's about, uh, so I was born in Toronto. Uh, like downtown Toronto. Um, It wasn't until I was a bit older that we moved out into kind of like the suburb area of Toronto. All right. Um, And the types of racism and the types of racialization you see are a little bit different in these two dynamics. Um, I find that the racism you feel in suburbs is a bit more passive Um, It's a bit more, oh, no, we're okay with that, but, like, don't do that. Um, Whereas in the city, it's more in your face. So 
Um, this is a poem that I wrote about being one of the few colored people in the world that I saw at that time in my life. All right. Uh, where everyone I looked around me, no one really looked like me. Um, and the home, the home that you find when you seek a family that you've chosen of people who kind of can resonate with that. So this is called uh, Colored Boys in the Suburbs Are a Novelty. <laughs> On a sweltering Tuesday, me and Dylan pack into my beat-up minivan and bump our stereo damn near to its limits. We push out Lupe Fiasco and Nas records on inadvertent Caucasian ears. The volume knob spins halfway backwards like our necks do on a double take when we see the cop cars. The police here don't hide their prejudice. We go back and forth rapping along to Illmatic. Nas told us that the world was ours even if the white boys at school told me to go back to my country for saying I hate the winters here. We break dance after school and play basketball in our off time. These are the color boy territories. And here live all of my friends, varying shades of rich mocha under echo and fubu adorned battle armor. Every afternoon is a reminder that you have to let your hair hang down in your face because a bandana ain't going to do nothing good for your image, son. Dust-caked asphalt drinks in the vibrations of our homebound running footsteps as symphonies of colored mothers fill evening air with the trust-droughted sound of Hell no, you ain't going to sleep over at nobody else's house tonight. You know you're close to home when you're greeted by the bold smell of curry and garlic filling up the block with a confidence you haven't yet found for yourself. Too many memories of plugged noses, cocktails of laughter and disgust as I opened up my lunchbox. Listen, I know all too well that people here in the suburb see my skin before they see I'm human. I remember that every time I have to shave my beard before I cross a border or Pops warns me about wearing a kufi to school because, yes, son, it's cool that Muhammad Ali wore one, but you're not Muhammad Ali, and we have to be extra careful around these parts. I think about the men who snatched the hijab off of my friend's head, how they built up temples to conformity on the land they broke her down on. How God once gathered enough stardust to fill her form and how she is now collapsing into herself like a dying sun. Her colored boy clan would gather around a lit backwoods like a campfire, telling stories of places where melanin wasn't as potent a currency as here. The colored boy territories don't have a border. They lie just beneath the ground of our neighborhoods like a trench, so you have to stand twice as tall just to see your peers eye to eye. Suburban white folks like to say that they don't see color as their gaze meets the brown pine box home of a dead colored boy while my mama still sees colored ghosts, and you ask her why she can't smile for you. Puts her head on my shoulder, and her tears run down my arm like a narrow stream. And I'm grateful I can tell her that I'm still here. At least I'm still here. Thank you. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. Thank you so much. You so much. <laughs> I've got 50 more questions, but I'll have to save them for the next time you come back. Oh, I would love to come back. I, <laughs> I, I love this experience. This is, this is hands down probably my favorite interview I've ever done. <laughs> well, that makes me feel good. That makes me feel good. All right. Where can we find streams that lead somewhere? Where is it located? So, yeah, streams that lead somewhere. Uh, because I'm Canadian and uh, the publisher is Canadian, 
Um, it can be a little tricky in the U.S. from your local bookstore. Um, that being said, you know, if, if you ask your local Barnes & Noble or whatever, um, I'm sure they can, they can stock it. But uh, to get it in an accessible way, Amazon or from the publisher's website, it is mowenzihouse.com. Um, yeah, mowenzihouse.com. Or you can go to my website which is uh, Fare Malik, my name, F-A-R-E-H-M-A-L-I-K.com. And then you can go to the store on my site and it'll redirect you to anything you might need. Well, let's say a million people tonight are like, hey, I've got to pick up that book. What piece <laughs> of advice would you read? What piece of advice would you share with them prior to reading the book? Any advice? I would say... If you are someone who can resonate with the messages in the book, mm -hmm. then you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And if you're someone who cannot resonate with a lot of the messages in the book, then I would say be open to understanding the experiences of others because that's how we're going to build love in our community is mutual respect, compassion, and dialogue. Wow. You could be my son. <laughs> because I talk about the importance of empathy all the time, that we have different lived experiences, and that through empathy, that if you can't understand, I say it all the time, if you can't understand another person's story in totality, attempt to resonate with the feelings that go along with that story, because there's a universal commonality in terms of our feelings. We all know sadness. We all know happiness and joy. So that's where to begin, if you don't understand. Read those words. What is he saying? What is she saying? What's, what's happening? What's next for you creatively? Uh, right now, I'm working on some some projects. Uh, I've, I've I've been very excited to write for some some really cool projects, some environmental projects. I've done. I just worked with a friend of mine on um, on a on a short film script for the Toronto Raptors. Wow. Uh, which is like my dream because I love the Raptors mm -hmm. um, and uh, and a couple other things that I'm, that I'm working on. But my big, my big, big one right now is focusing on my second book and the research for that and, and trying to create something a little bit more um, concrete in terms of form. Uh, I want to, I want to get into some creative nonfiction and start talking about experience that way. Well, Whenever you finish your book, send me a message because I want you to come back. Oh, of course. I'm happy to come back anytime you want. <laughs> I plan, I, actually, I plan to follow you, your career because you're going to soar. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I mean, like I said, I'm too old to lie. And uh, I want you to claim victory in that regard. All right? I will. All right. All right. Fari Malik, everyone. On a Thank Saturday you so night. much for having me. <laughs> yes. And to our listening audience, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Good night, Fari. Good night, everybody, and good night. <laughs> Quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at 
qlpor.com.